Welcome to the Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad that you are here to deepen and grow in your relationship with Christ. Today's message is brought to us by Cody Scholes, Orchard's Youth Director. Good morning. If I don't know you, my name is Cody Schultz. I'm the youth director here, and it is my pleasure to be opening up God's Word with you this morning. But I have a question. Have you ever heard of the difference between soft skills and hard skills? As I was preparing for this message, I was reminded of when I started here as the interim youth director before I became the full-time youth director. I had attended Biola and Talbot and spent many years taking theology classes, learning practical skills like how to read Greek and practical for me, I should say, (laughs) and how to write a message and developing a sermon and all those sorts of things. And these were the, the hard skills. These were the concrete things that are easily taught in a classroom. These are the things that we get to learn. And then as I began as the interim youth director, I began to learn that there were still pieces I was missing, those soft skills. And those soft skills are the things where we go, all right, I know all the hard hard skills. I know all the concrete information. I have the technical ability. How do I put it into practice, right? That is the soft skills. How do we put into practice all this head knowledge and technical gifting that we have? And I began this very rapid pace of learning exactly how I was going to put all this into practice. Maybe you identify with that from when you started your first career position and you had all this head knowledge that you were now putting up into applications. Or maybe you identify with this idea from when you became a parent. You had all the head knowledge. You knew how to take care of a baby conceptually because you knew that they need to be fed, they need to sleep, you knew when they need to have their diaper changed, and you had all the skills. But when you brought that baby home from the hospital, you weren't prepared for how to balance all of those things with your daily lives all those things that kept you busy even before you had a kid. Learning these soft skills is an important part of our daily lives of how we apply the head knowledge that we have. It's easy to amass knowledge. Putting it into practice is the real trick. Well, today as we dive into the depths of Romans, as we sit at the feet of Paul's teaching, we find ourselves at this very junction To this point in the book of Romans, Paul has been imparting head knowledge to the Roman church. He has been giving them information and he has been trying to help them understand why they need Jesus. Help them understand that they are sinners in need of a savior. And at this point, he transitions and he goes, you can know everything, but if you never put it into practice, what good is it, right? That is the junction where we find ourselves today. And as I was studying, one commentator coined this passage, the heart of the matter, because the transformation that Paul calls for in this passage is the practical response to God's grace, right? The succinct and vivid imagery that Paul uses cuts straight to the heart of of the matter, and that is that our lives should look different 
as a result of our relationship with Christ. And if we follow Jesus, yet our daily lives exhibit no change, have we truly been transformed by Christ? Are we truly living for him? Or are we just going about life as usual and stamping a different label on it? These are the questions that we get to ask ourselves as we face the truths of scripture, as we stand before God. So would you pray with me this morning as we dive into Romans? Heavenly Father, you are good. We trust that you hold all things together and that you know what is best. And Lord God, we thank you for men like Paul who, though he lived thousands of years ago, wrote in such a way that we could still learn and be challenged by him today. And so God, I ask that you would guide us in our understanding of your word written by Paul this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So our passage starts in chapter 12, verse 1, and it starts like this. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And the power of the first word in that verse cannot be overstated. When Paul says, therefore, that is a highlighting word. That is a word that should make us stop and pause and go, what is he about to say and what did he just say? Right, because if we don't understand what he just said, then how can we understand what he is going to tell us next? And when Paul says, therefore, here in verse one, he is specifically referring to the entirety of the information he has given to the Roman church in chapters one through 11, right? He is saying, keeping in mind everything I have just told you, therefore, right? That is where we land. And so he says, keeping in mind all of those hard skills, all of that head knowledge, all of those pieces of information, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters. And when he says urge, uh, that is a word in Greek called parakaleo. And I don't actually believe that that's the best translation to use there. Another translation that is used, and, and this is one that most commentators land on, is a word called exhort. And this is a very churchy word that we don't often use today, but it is a great word in this instance. Because what it means to exhort is to challenge, to encourage. And it lands somewhere between a request and a command, right? So it's not just a, hey, please do this, but it's also not quite an authoritative command from a superior. And so where that lands us is an encouragement that bears some level of authority. And so this word coming from Paul has an authoritative note to it, but it is still a request in nature made to the reader or the hearer. And so when he says, I urge you, I want you to hear him say, you have a responsibility in how you respond, right? 
you are not just a minion who says, I'm going to go about it, but you get to respond. You have some responsibility in this. You are not a mindless being, but that you are engaged in how you respond. And so we get to take it upon ourselves how we are going to respond to God's mercy. Right? Very next piece of this verse, he says, in view of God's mercy. And this becomes the basis for his entire appeal to the Roman church. In view of God's mercy. See, Paul has always, across all of his letters, referred to himself as an ambassador for Christ. And what an ambassador is, is essentially a mouthpiece. It is someone who speaks for and represents someone else. And in this moment, Paul is saying, I'm appealing to you not on the basis of my own perspective, not on my own opinion or my own merit, but I am appealing to you based on the mercy of God. So what does he mean when he says God's mercy? Keep in mind that in those previous 11 chapters, those ones that we're supposed to be remembering as the therefore told us we should, Paul has gone to great lengths to help his audience understand that they are sinners who need a savior. And God, in his mercy, gave them a savior in Jesus. And they did nothing to deserve it, right? Mercy is being given something that you don't deserve. And so why did he do it? Because he loves them so much. This is God's mercy. To take away the punishment that we deserve for our sin, instead give us life in Christ. Thus, in view of God's mercy, Paul writes, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. To this point in history, an offering had been understood one way. An offering had been understood as an animal sacrifice, the literal killing of an animal as a religious ritual in order to please God. You offered something in your place to make God happy, more or less, right? And as Paul instructs his listener or his reader to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, he is fundamentally changing how we think about an offering going forward. Because now you are not offering something in your place, you are offering yourself, right? When it says, offer your bodies, he's also not just talking about your physical body, right? And what you can do, but he is talking about the entirety of who you are, your character, your personality, your skills, yes, your abilities, your opinions, your desires, offer all of these things as a living sacrifice, right? But what is a living sacrifice? By using living as a modifier, Paul is highlighting the idea that we are now made alive in Christ, right? And so one thing we have to keep in mind throughout the book of Romans is that Paul has teed up this idea of two realms. There is the realm of sin and death, and there is the realm of freedom and life. And these two realms, we will live into one or the other. 
And when we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, we are living into that freedom that we have and that life that we have in Christ and choosing to sacrifice that self that we pursue, that sinful life that we lived before Jesus, laying it before him and saying, I no longer wish for this to define me. I no longer wish to be defined by my job. I wish no longer to be defined by my family, my accomplishments, my achievements, even by potentially by my church or anything else that we might find our identity in and our worth. And it said, laying those at Jesus' feet and saying, Lord, I give it all to you. Would you shape my desires would you shape in your likeness, right? This is us offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, laying down what we would want, laying down our own supposed needs and wants and saying, Lord, your will be done. And this is our spiritual act of worship, right? The end of verse one concludes this way. And this is the way that the NIV chooses to translate that word spiritual in Greek, but other more literal translations have chosen to translate that word a different way. They have chosen to translate it, this is your reasonable act of worship. And most commentators also land on that as the best choice for translation because, right, going back to that in view of God's mercy, this is the only reasonable response. While that word can be translated spiritual or reasonable, when we look at the depths of God's mercy, when we understand his goodness and the call of Jesus on our lives to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, this is the only reasonable response. To lay down ourselves, our own desires, our own wants, our own opinions and perspectives, to lay down the things that we are tempted to find our identity in that are found apart from Jesus and to give them to him. So when the rubber meets the road, Paul is attempting to make it clear that our lives, our identity, are not supposed to be focused on these other things. And instead, we are supposed to find purpose, identity, and satisfaction in our relationship with the Lord in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we find the meaning for our lives. And ultimately, we are satisfied by him. So now we move into verse two. And in verse two, Paul writes, so do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And you don't have to look far to realize that there is very real and powerful pressures in this world to live a certain way, to behave certain ways, and to think certain ways, right? Whether you saw it as a kid in school or you experienced it in the workplace, these social pressures are real and they're happening all around us. Some of them can be a good thing, you know? Sometimes 
it's a good thing to be kind to your coworkers and to have that pressure. But often this pressure means approaching life from a worldly perspective, right? And what's Paul's first directive in verse 2? Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Bring back those two realms. We have the realm of sin and death, and we have the realm of life and freedom. The realm of sin and death is what characterizes the worldly perspective. Paul says, hey, don't conform to that perspective any longer. Don't chase that idea. Don't chase the things that the world says are important. Do not find your value there. Choose life. Choose freedom. And find your identity in that place. And so the only natural understanding of our passage is that when we offer our lives as a living sacrifice, that we should no longer approach life from the perspective of or the values of the world. Instead, we are supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? Paul writes, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Often, that starts up here. How we think, how we approach things, where we have developed opinions began up here in our heads, in our minds. And instead, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I have this image every time I read this passage of a brain that is sick and diseased. It's dying. And that brain is only capable of, of thinking in, in the pattern of this world, which is ultimately which landed it in this position in the first place. And that brain is not getting better. Because continuing in that same pattern leads you to one place. And so what that brain needs is to be made new, right? Literally, to be remade as it was intended. To take on the perspective and the desires that it was designed to have. One that is characterized by the other realm. That realm of life and freedom. And when I put my faith in Jesus, my mind isn't immediately cured. But it is the first step in being made new. And I do have freedom from being trapped in that other realm. And I now have access, and I am now a citizen of the realm where healing can happen. And healing will happen. Because when we follow Jesus, when we lay ourselves at his feet, when we sacrifice all of who we are, we are being made new. Ditching the old way, the way that made our minds sick, the way that leads to death, and instead pursuing a way that leads us to life. And this is the only way that as we come to the final points of our passage, that we can test and approve of God's will. If we choose to continue to live in that realm of sin and death, there's no way of knowing God's will because our will does not match his will. Our will reflects what we want in that place. Our will reflects whatever we're chasing after. But when we sacrifice our will at his feet and we say, God, give me your will, 
then our desires reflect his desires. What we want reflects what he wants. And our will begins to match his will. Thus, we are able to know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If I had to describe my own will, I would not describe it as good nor pleasing. Definitely not perfect. But his will is the very definition of those three things. His will is what is good, what is pleasing, and what is perfect. And I want that. But in our culture, this feels unnatural. We are constantly hit with the idea that we should live for ourselves, that what we want is good or right, and that should be king. And so we should pursue that. But that comes from the world. That comes from a twisted and flawed perspective. It doesn't come from that freedom, from that good, perfect, and pleasing will. That comes from me. And so I need to ditch that. I need to leave that. I need to follow Jesus and find ultimate satisfaction, ultimate fulfillment in him. As we bring things to a close, I was reminded of a time that I had with my dad. I think there's something about classic cars that just resonate with people. You see a classic car rolling down the road that's been restored and you think, man, that's sweet. And my dad and I were visiting one of his friends one day and there was this old Dodge Super B sitting out back of his friend's shop. It had been abandoned, it was in rough shape and it needed to be made new. And my dad saw the beauty in what should have been a junker and decided to restore the thing. And he was meticulous about it. He made sure that it was exactly the way it was when it had rolled off the lot back in 1970. And when you saw that car, it didn't look anything like what it did behind his friend's shop all those years ago when it had been abandoned because it had been made new. It had new life. The same is when we lay down our own wants and desires in front of Jesus, we have new life. We have been restored. And we have that freedom. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the courage of Paul and the wisdom that you instilled in him. But Lord God, we thank you that today we can still dive into his teaching and be challenged by his word. Would you make us new today, Lord? Would you teach us to lay all things at your feet? In your name we pray. Amen.